A warning to our listeners. This episode contains graphic descriptions of a violent crime. The defendant in his interview says that Megan Tote and himself had an agreement that everybody needed to die in order to pass over to the other side together because the apocalypse was coming. And you'll hear that in the defendant's interview. From the day in New London, Connecticut, I'm Sten Spinella, and this is Looking for the Tote Family. As Sheriff of Osceola County, it brings me great sadness to report, you know, such a tragedy. On January 15th, 2020, two days after the gruesome discovery of the decomposed bodies of Megan, Alec, Tyler, and Zoe Tote, Osceola County Sheriff Russ Gibson held a press conference. Anthony has cooperated with the investigation and he has confessed to killing his wife, Megan Tote, 42 years of age. So that was that. A man had admitted to killing his family and living in the house with their bodies for weeks. As the communities of Colchester, Connecticut and Celebration, Florida grieved and wrestled with the question of why this happened, we thought we were investigating that same question, a relatively simple one, even if the answers were not. Myself, I cannot understand what would cause a person to commit such evil and horrendous acts. As it turned out, the question of what exactly happened was just as vexing as the question of why. While the investigators and prosecutors wouldn't provide more details beyond the fact that there was a confession, Tony, the man who reportedly copped to the murders, had a different story to tell, one of complete innocence. Up until the trial, we only had one version of events, pieced together from Tony's phone calls and letters. He spent the night away from home and returned to find his children dead. He watched his wife take her own life and doesn't remember what he told investigators. Tony's claims seemed pretty outrageous coming from someone who was found living in a house with his deceased wife and kids. But we didn't have any counter-narrative that would let us hold Tony's claims up to the light. State of Florida may call their next witness. Until midway through day two of the trial. Do you see Anthony Tote in the courtroom? I do. When the state called Detective Cole Miller. Has the appearance of the defendant changed since you saw him in January of 2020? Yes, it has. How? He's lost a lot of weight. Miller spoke with Tony on January 13th, the day he was taken into custody and January 15th, the day of Gibson's press conference. Was your interview on January 15th audio and video recorded? It was. Assistant State's Attorney Danielle Pinnell played video of the January 15th interview, which lasted slightly more than two hours, finally giving us the chance to compare what he told police to the forensic evidence and to the story he had been telling from jail. In these three versions of the story, we saw some parallels, but just as many contradictions. It felt like trying to resolve these contradictions would be key to our understanding of what actually happened. But when you're examining different statements made by the same man over the course of two years, a resolution can be hard to find. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please pay attention to the instructions I'm about to give you. Uh, You are about to view a recording. Court instructs you that the recording has been edited to eliminate the relevant portions that would not add to your understanding of the case. When the video starts, the camera's wide-angle lens looks down from a high corner of the room. Tony, handcuffed and clad in a white jumpsuit, 
sits alone in the corner before Detective Miller and another investigator enter from the right. The plain white room is just big enough to fit the three men and a small table on the wall opposite the door. Um, just to let you know, I'm recording this. Just like the conversations we had the other day. Uh, at the hospital. The detectives have clearly spoken with Tony before and seem to be going back over Tony's story to get the record straight. There were three interviews. The first was excluded because Tony wasn't properly advised of his rights. What I do is, this is what I read you the other day. I want to have you just, I'm going to read it to you again before I speak to you, obviously. I'm right. It's a bit disorienting to only see one of the three interviews. As with much of the case, we still get an incomplete picture. I'm required to inform you that you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand? Can you speak up a little bit? Yes. Although the defense tried to get all three of Tony's confessions thrown out, this one took place two days after he was arrested. And in this case, he was fully read his rights. You are entitled to talk to a lawyer before answering a question. You understand? Yes. Then the detectives, with great civility, questioned him. Uh, it's a very tragic event, very unfortunate event. Um, earlier this week, we were called to your home, obviously. I'm just doing this. All three of us have already spoken. We thought it worth mentioning that Tony tells his sister in a phone call and his father in a letter from jail that he doesn't remember any of his interviews with police. He blames that on all the Benadryl he ingested, as he claims he tried to kill himself multiple times via Benadryl overdose since his family's deaths. I don't know what they treated you for. I don't know if it was something to do with some liver, kidneys, or something like that, enzymes or something. He did have a lot of Benadryl in his system, and he was treated for it. But in his January 15th interview, he seemed lucid and acknowledged that he was. How do you feel right now? Regarding health-wise? Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I feel very sad and very upset that I'm still here. And yeah. Is there somewhere else you'd rather be? With my family? On the, on the other side? On the other side? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you do know... Your wife and, and children are deceased. Yes, and that's where I want to be. That's where you want to be. Okay. His answer as to why he killed his family, what we'd wanted to know for so long, is more on the nose than we ever could have guessed. She been watching these videos, talking about the afterlife, talking about some In this telling, he and Megan were seeking a higher world consciousness and expecting the apocalypse. And the more and more watched, Tomorrow more I gain understand that there is more than this life here. Mm-hmm. A higher, a higher, um, global consciousness. They plan to kill their kids and themselves so as to avoid separation in the afterlife. And we started finding more about the world just coming to the end, the apocalyptic end, and that a family is going to be separated and enslaved, and to better to avoid this. So all go together. Okay. You mean die together? Die together, that's correct. I remember a time when we felt that this line of thinking had to be fantasies by minds poisoned by true crime. Of course, Tony denies his confession now, claiming it was offered under false pretenses. So, because my wife's been chronically ill for a while, this really appealed to her, and because it appealed to me also, because she wouldn't be in any pain, found I wouldn't be separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, there would be no more sorrow, no more heartbreaking, no more anything. It would be a, a salvation and everlasting life. He says this alternative religion appealed to him because it advertised salvation. The first mention we heard of this alternative religion was in Tony's letter to his father. In it, he describes it as solely Megan's obsession, 
In this interview, he sounds like a full-blown acolyte. So we kept doing our research, kept doing our research, kept doing our research, reading up things, meditating, and decided that, yeah, this should be a thing. This should be what we should do. In an especially disturbing part of the confession, Tony says he and Megan sat down with the kids to ask them about the plan. We had sat down and talked with the boys and Zoe just on different things about, you know, death and the way the, uh, you know, what would happen if mommy died, you know, how would you feel, what happened when daddy died, what would you feel? And because of some responses, was like, we don't want you to die, we want to die with you. He tells the detectives that the kids said they want to die with their parents. This was one of the few parts of the interview where detectives pushed back on what Tony was saying as they questioned whether the kids were equipped to make such a decision. Were the children really that receptive to it? Were, were they that understanding of this pact from the beginning? They can really understand to a certain point because they were children. Correct. Okay. I'll say 13 and, and 11. I have some. They clearly understand to a certain point where they're children. And he explains to them, and wanted to get their feelings about the aspect of, you know, if mommy and daddy die, you know, if mommy and daddy take their own lives uh, and get their feedback. And their constant response with different excuses question was they want to be with us. I still don't quite understand how he can say what happened to his family wasn't related to his finances, as he claims later in the interview with police. This conversation with the children, according to Tony, happened shortly before Thanksgiving which is exactly when he found out he was in extremely hot water with the FBI. So we were coming up with different things of how we could do this. We didn't know how we could do this um, because we're not violent people. Okay? Not violent people at all. Tony delves deep into his research methods. Apparently, he and Megan exhaustively researched what they were about to do. You know, we started reading different things. There's something came on TV about cough medicine. Okay? So could they have some cough medicine that put them to sleep, they overdose of cough medicine, just put them to sleep. And they have nice peaceful death. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, so my wife made a pudding pie. Pudding pie? Jello pie? Mm-hmm. Um, froze it. it. Nothing happened. What was in the pie? Uh, what was in the pie? Sleep, ease, ease uh, different things with drama, hydrate. The mention of the Benadryl pudding pie was one of the several details consistent from Tony, whether it was his confession or his letter to his father. I'm still trying to remember when the children died. I can't put those pieces together. Yeah. And I'm sorry. No, no, you're, you're fine. Another consistent detail is the holiday concert in Florida that the kids performed in, which was the last time they were seen in public. We wanted the kids to stick around for the Christmas holiday concert because we didn't want to disappoint that. Tony says that when they went to the holiday concert, they had already decided to kill the kids. Could this be why the music teacher remembered that they were not wearing festive holiday outfits like the rest of the participants? Where did you guys do the research at? We went up and down the, honestly up and down the um, aisles of the uh, publics and asked the, um, the, uh, the drug guy can't forest, forest, thank you. you know, what's something good to put you asleep? No, Whether Tony's interview with police was a testament to the truth or not, the person he describes to detectives is an evil or thoroughly misguided criminal, though not exactly a mastermind. You know, we started researching and researching, we said we're just going to have to do some sort of examination. Okay? Plead to death. 
Okay? And that's how they used to do it way in the back when they used to do sacrificial things. You take a bleed to death? Bleed to death. Oh, bleed to death, sorry. Okay. That's okay. Okay. And so we started researching where would be the easiest to stab to do, why not so the kids could bleed to death, maybe in combination with the sleep drug. While talking about his and Megan's research, I realized that one of Tony's stated reasons for initially taking the blame is because he wanted to protect Megan's name. But in this interview with police, he is dragging Megan right through the mud with him, implicating her in a host of crimes and painting himself and his wife as partners in these crimes. Now you're saying you and your wife did this together? Mm Mm-hmm. Let's go to the day of their death. How did this go down? Woke up at 11.30 at night. We set the, the, the alarm for 11.30 at night. And got up out of bed. And it was Zoe first. Tony said Zoe was the first kid he and Megan killed. But it took him a while to get up the nerve. So I went into Zoe's room. And it took me two or three hours sitting there. Because it was, it's a tough, but the everlasting salvation, the, the thought of that everlasting salvation was there, and I needed to save her soul in order to be with us. He said he didn't know if he stabbed Zoe, but that he thinks he tried. The medical examiner said Zoe didn't have evidence of stab wounds. I know I tried. I don't know if I ever punched it. Um, I don't know if I did or not. I saw a little mark on her, but I, I don't know if I saw, saw anything. But then she rolled and started swiggling and I put my hands over her mouth and I put a pillow over top of her. So she went and she started to fade away. And I just held that until there was no motion left. Tony said he kept his hand over Zoe's mouth, smothered her with a pillow and laid on her to kill her. The whole process took about 10 to 15 minutes. So you didn't lay on her? I did lay on her when she lay on her belly. I'm sorry. I laid on her to keep her down, and I put the pillow on the top. Do you think you stabbed her or no? I don't know. Megan and Tony then go into Alex's room. They team up this time, according to Tony's confession. Beforehand, we had talked about the aspect of she's got to hold his feet down, and I'll I'll do the stab. Tony says Alex started thrashing after he was stabbed. Tony uses his hands to extinguish Alex's breath by holding his nose and mouth. He said he didn't know how long it took to kill Alec, but that it was over fast. He's on his back. She holds, she's just sitting there holding his feet together. We're just in there, just eyeing each other. Just gaining the confidence, I guess. You know, and I go to... Like, I, I, I stabbed him, and he started kicking, was trying to get up, and he kept rolling. So I ended up putting a, there was a pillow there, and I put a pillow in the back of his head so he wouldn't hit me with the back of his head. And I reached around with my hand and held his um, nose in his mouth. And he kept rolling and kicking and rolling and kicking, and that eventually stopped. Tony talks about stabbing and suffocating, but doesn't mention the Benadryl. So the detectives ask for clarification. So the night in question, they weren't under the influence of anything. They were just normal. They, were, they had the um, that, um, 
what you call a pie or something like that? Pie? Yeah. That didn't that work that night. Uh, I don't remember if he gave me anything. Because those are two separate nights. The timeline seems to be all off. Tony says in the interview that he and Megan made the pie thinking the kids were going to die in their sleep. We tried the pie the one night we tried it before. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember if we tried anything in that next night or not. In this telling, there's a 24-hour gap between feeding them the pie on one night and killing them the next night, whereas everything happened in the course of one night in Tony's letter to his father. At one point, he says Megan told him to hurry up so they could finish everything before the sun came up. And she turned to me, she goes, we have to finish this. There's one more left to go before the sunlight comes up. Tony and Megan took special care in killing Tyler. My Tyler is the strongest kid, and my Tyler is the quickest kid. And if he got out of the room by chance, you know, it would, it wouldn't help the situation. But, uh, because we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to catch him, hence we wouldn't be able to all go together. Was there fear that maybe he would get away? Uh, like outside of the home, like alert neighbors or something? Or? Yeah. He stabs Tyler, and then Tyler begins to struggle. So Tony smothers his son with a pillow and uses his hand to take his breath. Tony said the whole struggle was over extremely quick. He was laying on his left side, and I was able to get in and get the knife right in there. He got, he got it, it started bleeding quite a bit, but then being strong, he kept moving, moving, moving. So then again, I had to get, like, put a pillow on top of my hand and... But he went really, really, really quick. Tony tells detectives he suffocated Breezy, but didn't stab her. I was able to hold the, the knot in the, her snout and her um, nose closed, and she went peacefully. Victor else put her in her bed, and then Meg was like, I want to go next, so I'm be done. And then what? So you just suffocated the dog? So if there was any type of marks or anything like that on the dog, you wouldn't know anything about it? Okay. What kind of marks go on the dog? I, that, I just suffocated the dog. You didn't stab the dog? I didn't stab the dog. Okay. You stab one on the dog. That's interesting because I, I, I didn't stab the dog. Then, after some confusion, they decide Megan needs to die next. Gave her the knife. And I laid next to her, and she put the knife into her stomach. Okay. And I said, do you get the spot? It's right here. Said, yeah, I feel it. Okay. I'm laying there, laying there for 45 minutes. It's supposed to take about, so about 10 minutes, whatever it says. If, if you hit the spot. And what is in that spot? What are you talking about? It's supposed to be in a comma. Okay. On the umbilicus. You're supposed to be able to bleed out. They say at one to four minutes, but under 10 minutes. And what are you specifically targeting within that area? The inferior vena cava. Okay. It's, it's a big blood return. Okay. Uh, it's a large vessel and you bleed out in your abdomen. It's, it's just quick. She stabbed herself twice, but she didn't die, Tony says. So, okay. And she, with two hands, pushed in. And you hear like a little click as if it went through something. Okay. So I was like, okay. Sounds like it went through the liver. That's good. Okay. She pulled it out. She put the knife right next to her. And I just laid with her. And I laid there and held her. And we just waited. It seemed like hours went by and nothing else happened. She urges him to kill her by smothering her with a pillow. And he needs some convincing. 
First, though, he has her take more Benadryl. She goes, I want this ended now. What does that mean? She goes, I want, to put, I want you to take the pillowcase, put, put a pillow, and put it over my head. I said, I don't know if I can do that. And she looked at me, she goes, if you love me, you can do this. I want to be with my babies. And so, yeah, you know, it's, and she just looked at me, she was just strong enough, and you can do it. Okay. So I said, why don't you take some more Benadryl? So there's, you're not going to fight me. And I'll do it. So she says, don't worry about it. She took some more Benadryl. And maybe about 15 minutes later, I came back to her and I said, you still want to do this? And she talked to me, like, uh, very far out. Yeah, get it done. The detectives kind of lost the thread after that because Tony doesn't ever say how Megan actually dies and instead goes on a mostly unrelated tangent. When she changed the sheet, she put a bunch of sheets on the, a bunch of stuff that was wet on the um, bathroom floor. And later on, I cleaned up and threw that away. noted some of the injuries that were noted um, are consistent with some of your statements the biggest point of contention in the interview and something I was surprised the defense didn't draw more attention to has to do with the stabbing Tony claims he stabbed Tyler and Alec as part of how he killed them he said he isn't sure if he stabbed Zoe are you sure that you stabbed them prior to them being deceased? Yes. 100% sure. Without a doubt. Okay. So if a doctor, medical examiner, tells you that the wounds, or tells me, are done post-mortem, mm-hmm. what would you say to that? Absolutely correct. The ME said the boys were stabbed after they died. But Tony insists he stabbed them first. He also says he didn't stab the dog, but Dr. Adam Stern testified that there appeared to be a puncture wound. It was, it was noticed uh, during yesterday's uh, events that the dog was stabbed. I didn't do that. But I mean, it doesn't matter. No, no. I just let you know. Okay. Are these contradictions evidence that Tony is lying in his interview? In his letter, he said he took responsibility in order to protect Megan. If he really was lying to protect Megan, could he be getting some of the details wrong? What were you doing during this time frame? We're talking over two weeks. Trying to kill myself. Tony detailed several different instances of his attempts to kill himself after his family died. So then it it came to me. Then Megan asked that I wait a day or two. To make sure everything they were right past, make sure the house was all set and that kind of stuff, and it's on. So that's what I did. I started, I started the Benadryl. I tried hanging myself. He said he choked himself with zip ties. He tried to stab himself. He tried to hang himself. He tried to kill himself with a pellet gun. And he tried to Benadryl himself to death. Nothing worked. I'm not much about guns in the house, but I was reading on Quora that you can kill yourself with a pellet gun. Pellet gun? It hurt. 
Where do you shoot yourself? In the liver and the heart. Back two wounds. The liver and the heart. Mm -hmm. The liver the first time. Bled quite a bit. Didn't do anything. Asked why he didn't purchase a real gun, Tony said it was because the waiting period was three days. I tried the razor blade to the radio artery, which I told you I hit, but they didn't do it well in the, um, they didn't do it in the tub, so dry up. Um, zip tie around the neck, the only thing that did was irritate my claws. I couldn't get down the carotid artery because my neck is too big. It seems these suicide attempts explain the injuries to Tony's neck and abdomen that were documented by the forensic technician. The zip ties and the knives and the research and everything, how come it didn't work? Zip ties didn't work because I couldn't get enough compression on it. The knife, because in all honesty, I chickened out and countered it out with a knife. Okay. We had seen the zip ties and the red nylon strap in the crime scene photos of the master bedroom. And it was weirdly a relief to hear Tony say that these were part of his suicide attempts and not a way to restrain the kids. I'm either going to put it on the, the hinge of the door, put my feet against the door and lean forward, or do the same thing up in the bed. Did you wrap that around your neck? Mm-hmm. Like, trip test it? Mm-hmm. What, what, what color was the straps? Red. Red straps. Where are they at? He also says he lost a phone and admits to driving down to Sarasota, Florida after the deaths. Which phone was left in a, like a Starbucks or something in Sarasota? That one was that phone that was mine. Um, and I drove from, got, went back and got it. He does not disclose what he was doing down there. Was that when the family was still alive that you went down there to Sarasota? No. They were already dead? Mm-hmm. Okay, and you drove the, the van, drove the red van down there? This trip to Sarasota, a two-hour drive from Celebration, was one of those mysterious details that people had fixated on ahead of the trial. Here was confirmation of it, but no indication of its significance. What would you tell a family during this this time frame, like around the deaths and after the deaths. That were either uh, vacationing at the beach or I was looking at 55 cents purchase. Tony also gives some insight into his family dynamics at the time of the murders. Who were you communicating with? Sisters and mom. Your sisters? Which sisters? Kelly? I wasn't communicating with Chrissy anymore. He was in touch with his other sisters, but not Chrissy and he wasn't in touch with his dad. Do you guys have a good relationship, or? Yeah, we're in a relationship. How about you and your mom? I'm not very close, and that's why I had to really be, really be evasive with her. Could she tell that maybe you'd be evasive? She could, that's why I had to reinforce the fact that I was trying not to be. Okay. Your sisters? My sisters just, they love me, and they had a sixth sense. We find out from Tony what we were relatively sure of all along, that he had passed himself off as Megan and the kids in text conversations with family after the family was killed. Have you communicated with anybody after that? Has anybody texted you? Have you been using any of the other devices, anything like that? Using the devices to text people, yes. And that's, why'd you do that? Keep people away so I can finish myself. He said he was certain the family was killed before Christmas and that any texts from them after that were actually from him. People said that they were communicating with 
what they thought were your family members. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was you. The matter-of-fact nature with which Tony drops these massive pieces of information was jarring. Tony divulges that he did leave symbolically religious items with his family, including rosary beads. No, I had put a rosary in her hands later on when I moved. When you moved the bodies? When I moved the bodies, yes. These beads and the like were seen in the crime scene photos and did have us leaning toward the spiritual apocalypse theory. Before all this was done, we had all these, we had the kids bringing all those little, those little altar things. There were, there were like favorite items or something? Yes. Okay. So I had to fix those because I knocked those over. We saw what looked like a shrine in the crime scene photos, and it turned out that it did have something to do with the ritualistic nature of their death. What specifically did he want to bring with him? He wanted the scarf, the soccer scarf. Soccer scarf? Yep. One picture in particular shows a chest at the foot of the bed. On top of that chest is a USA soccer scarf, a photo of a cat, a photo of the kids posing with Elmo and Cookie Monster, a teddy bear, a plaque with a poem called Why God Made Little Boys, and other materials. Did you position that on his body? No, I positioned it on the, on the toy box itself. On the toy box. Mm-hmm. Right. Tony tells police he went to the condo after everyone was dead because Zoe wanted a Mickey Mouse necklace. Were you leaving the home? Were you going over to the other place in Georgetown or wherever it is? I went over to the other place once because um, my daughter really, really, really wanted her Mickey Mouse, um, Mickey Mouse uh, necklace. So I went up into the, the condo to see if I could get the Mickey Mouse necklace to find it in the jewelry box, and I couldn't find it. He also told Chrissy over the phone that he was concerned about the whereabouts of the Mickey Mouse necklace. The night everything happened, okay, I'm going to tell you this. Um, I went over because Zoe wanted her Mickey silver uh, necklace for a reason, but you'll find out later, okay? Yeah. Um, but anyways, I went over to the condo to get that. That was the one last thing we needed. And he asked her to find it for him when she visited Florida after his arrest. I found Zoe's necklace. You found what? I found Zoe's necklace. Where was it? It was in the jewelry box. Oh, my God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. When first reporting this story, one of the things that we couldn't understand, that no one could understand, was how Tony could have stayed in the house for weeks with the bodies of his family. So take me through how, how does this take place? How, how does this, well, they were all killed. They were all in different positions inside the home. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what happens? The first day, I, lay, I just laid in bed with Meg the first day after she, she died. Just laid in bed um, with her. Um, I want to say it's the second day after she died. I said, okay, time to get things moving. After laying in bed with Megan's body for a day, Tony says he carefully, almost lovingly, moved each of the children into the master bedroom so they could all be together. I was adamant I did not want to drag him. He's my son. I did not want to drag him. Um, so I picked him up the best I could. A little steps at a time I got him through. So you carried him? We carried all the children? Yeah. Oh. That's just something that you wanted to do as a parent? 
versus Dragon Right. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I, the ultimate respect to them. We realize that in Tony's mind, it's not a contradiction to kill his son and to take care while moving his body. To him, at least with what he was telling police at this moment, killing them was a righteous, even merciful act, and dragging his son's body disrespectfully flies in the face of that. That's it. No, you don't want to drag him like a piece of... No, just me. Absolutely. When Tony's retelling gets to the day police knocked on his door, his memory gets foggy. I don't remember that morning, really, like how things matriculated. Um, I just remember how the door. He describes what sounds like hallucinations he had the night before. Last, the night before, I remember feeling like the house was being surveillanced. And I was seeing all these red and green knots and... He says he saw Megan that morning, but he understands at the time of the interview that it wasn't real. I also remember seeing Megan out there talking to you guys, which wasn't true. No, no I know, but I'm just telling you what, you know, it's like, so I don't, that's why I, mean, I don't quite know. Now that it's been a couple of days, you probably have a recollection of what's transpired that morning. I don't have a, too much of a recollection that morning, honestly. Well, I mean, looking back, I mean, I can tell you now she's, she's deceased. No, I so, she, so we know she wasn't talking. Correct. Yeah. In contrast to the rest of his story, which he recalls in great detail, he says he doesn't remember the details of that day. Do you remember what, when they come in the house, mm-hmm. do you remember what you told them? No. Okay. All right. I, 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 I don't. All right. After hearing the testimony on day one, we can correlate many of Miller's questions with the evidence in the prosecution's case. Did you guys leave any notes or journals or anything like that? We left a note trying to explain what we did. Miller asks if they left a note, and Tony describes what sounds like the paper that Emily Seda photographed in the master bedroom. Did you guys sign that? No, we just typed it up and printed it. It was already printed? Mm-hmm. Was it printed when Megan was still alive? I know, I printed it after Megan was live. We wrote it up together, and, and I just didn't print it before. Did you print that off of which computer? Was it a right tower? It was a phone. Your phone was connected to a printer? And you can air print. Oh, okay. It seems a little strange that they would have written the note together, but then Tony printed it on his own after everyone was dead. We had to wonder, why else would he print this note after everyone was dead if not to cover his actions? So that, that there would probably be record or something on your your phone of that if I saved it. I don't remember if I saved it or not. An hour and forty minutes into the interview, Detective Miller mentions the financial situation. Obviously, it's been brought up that uh, your finances are, are a mess. Yeah, a mess. Yeah. It felt a little out of place and possibly an oversight to mention the family's financial suffering. One of the only mentions of that in the whole trial. Because before the trial, the judge determined that the healthcare fraud issues could not be mentioned during the trial. It's possible these two factors aren't the same thing, but it's worth noting that the interview was slightly edited. Does Megan actually know the complexity of your financial mess? Mm-hmm. This has nothing to do with the finances, though. Okay, and that's, that was kind of my. The financial situation is what people on social media seem to seize on as the motive. Either Tony snapped because of the stress or he killed them for insurance money to pay his debts, or they were going to leave him because of the fraud. Because the judge ruled that the fraud investigation couldn't be mentioned, we never hear this as a possible motive, and barely hear the suggestion that Tony acted alone. 
In the interview, Tony dismisses the idea that this was the motive and instead says it was because the end of the world was coming. This has something to do with the fact that because with the transition, the apocalypse coming towards the end of the day is going to end in December. We need to make this transition because by the end of December, this is when this was supposed to happen. The apocalypse and everything by the end of December. Mm -hmm. Tony claimed Megan's predisposition for this plan is owed to her chronic pain and the couple's miscarriage in 2019. What do you think led Megan into researching this? What was her... God, the ridiculous amount of pain and the ridiculous amount of just... Her just she can't put in the... She had just a recent miscarriage. Miller presses Tony for a lot of details about Megan's miscarriage and her sickness. Did she ever get any, any treatment or doctors or anything like that? She does. She, when she got sick with that major liver thing, mm-hmm. which is real over the same thing, so I seen doctors and the doctors up and down, thousands and thousands and thousands. It's unclear what the significance of this is, as the prosecution doesn't ever prove any of what Tony says is false. And the defense never introduces witnesses or evidence to back up Tony's statements. Brigham Women's Children's Hospital. We went to Yale. We went to Hartford Hospital. We went to uh, Bacchus Hospital. We went to... Was there any primary that she would see back home in Connecticut? Yes. Um, Dr. I... Uh, he's in Canada, Canada Dr. You would think the prosecution would verify the doctors Tony mentions in his interview with police. The primary doctor was Dr. Kendra. Um... Kendra, Kendra, Kendra. Uh, yeah. Waterford Crossroads. Um. As a result of this lack of verification, all of the information on Megan's medical conditions continues to come from Tony. Okay, and who was she seeing down here? She saw a lot by telecommute. She saw. She went to a celebration. She went to celebration. Okay, so they would have to have some type of records of her. Yeah. All right. Take full responsibility. At the end of the interview, Tony is defiant, saying that it's okay for anyone, including his family, to judge him. The other day you said that you don't tell everybody, family or friends, your beliefs and all that. Why is that? Because we get judged. He compares it to going organic and gluten-free in the family's diet, which was met with confusion from his extended family. They just don't understand why we go organic, why we go gluten-free, why we do this, you know, why it's always judged. So we just stop telling everybody. And he states that he and Megan follow a very non-traditional Catholic religion. Our own beliefs, even the fact that we follow a very non-traditional Catholic religion, we're still judged. Also toward the end of his interview, he characterizes himself as more of a follower of Megan, thereby completely defeating the purpose of trying to protect her name as he has claimed. Was it you or Megan that was primarily uh, a boy of follower? You were more of a follower? No, was more of a follower. Oh, more of a follower. I got the feeling that Tony sort of expected to be let go by the end of the interview. Unfortunately, for your sake, we are still on this side, okay? Um, you're not with your family right now. So you are going to be charged with their murders, you understand that? 
That's fine. Okay. When police tell him he is still charged with the killings, he begins to cry. Okay, I know you, you, you may see things differently. The defense, in emphasizing Tony's shaky, unstable demeanor, seems to be insinuating that Tony's state of mind calls into question his credibility. Detective Miller asks him this directly, and Tony disputes it. You know, you didn't, you didn't get, you didn't take anything while you're in the hospital that would alter your mind or your thought process or. Tony's confession leaves us with multiple conflicting narratives. First, what Tony told police that he and Megan were somehow equal partners in the crime. Second, the prosecutions that focuses on Tony as solely culpable while ignoring many of the inconsistencies. And third, Tony's description of himself as 10,000% innocent. The last big question we had about the trial was whether Tony would testify in his own defense. We didn't have to wait long to find out. We are faced with a complex scenario which will only grow more complex each day of the trial. The state wants the jury to believe Tony's confession. At the same time, the state is asking the jury to disbelieve everything Tony has maintained in the more than two years since his family's deaths. The fact that one of Tony's confessions was thrown out by the judge complicates matters further. We wondered. Would Tony's attorneys be able to throw enough dirt on his confession while also building him up to be a now trustworthy guy? His testimony would be his opportunity to show himself as good, a man incapable of such heinous acts, who came home astonished at his wife's treachery. Or it would be his chance to shoot himself in the foot. He didn't have to take the stand, but he chose to. Please identify yourself. My name is Anthony John Tote. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Looking for the Tote Family on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to rate the show. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Looking for the Tote Family is hosted and reported by Sten Spinella, produced by Peter Huapi and Carlos Virhen, written by Sten Spinella and Peter Huapi, editing by Peter Huapi, and music by Carlos Virhen. Tim Cotter is our executive editor and his Askun Larnietta is our managing editor. This has been a production of The Day in New London, Connecticut.